Oxford Christmas Lecture. Uh, my name is Tony Watts. I'm a professor in biochemistry here, and this is the view I used to have from my uh, office until they destroyed the building a short while ago. And I'll come back to why that's important in a moment. Now, Johnny asked me to give a bit of uh, background to where I am. This is the building I now work in. It's the biochemistry department, and it's no less than 100 meters that side of that wall, okay? So it's just across there brand new building. My old office used to be up here in that building. I am also a fellow of St. Hughes College, which is about 15 minutes up Bambury Road, and we've just finished the admissions exercise looking at 500 odd candidates who all want to read biochemistry from next year, and we will select about 90 of those. So I spend the vast majority of my time doing scientific research, and I have done uh, for about 40 odd years now. And I also teach within the college and the university, but I also, of course, am a bit of an administrator. And so my research uh, is done by students, and many of these, some of these, are no more than 10 years older than you are. So you could be here in 10 years' time. Some of these are undergraduates, for example. He's now a third-year biochemist, and he's about 21. So that's not too far off for you, okay? So these are the people who do all of the research in my laboratory and some people give me money as well, of course. Johnny asked me to tell you where I came from and how I got to where I am. I lived in a very, very small village near Tenbury Wells on the Welsh borders. That is my primary school as of today. It's a house, and these were my two classrooms. And I used to walk to school a couple of miles along that particular road every day from 4 until 10. And uh, this is what the school looked like. There were about 30 children in the school, and that's where I started doing basic science experiments in that school uh, with my teachers. I then moved to a grammar school at Ludlow. Built, that building uh, was built in 1300, but the school was actually founded in 1200. It's the third oldest non-religious school in the country. A small town, Ludlow. This is where we had our main centers. And that's how I got to school every day. Olive bus was built in 1929. The only difference is that the mudguards were green, but the rest of the bus was that color and yellow. So um, what did I do? I was a bit of a nerd, I suspect. I used to work in shops, uh, in particular one uh, shop that sold bikes, irons, radios. And I used to go and mend these just to get some experience and earn some money at the weekend. And being the nerd I am, I bought chemistry sets. I remember buying my first one. And I used to do amateur radio quite a lot, which was a popular activity in those days. I didn't like this bit of science. The teacher at the, uh, the blackboard and me listening, I like this. And this is exactly what my science labs look like. And I look actually much like that. And I like to get down and do experiments. That was how I really got enthusiastic. And this is the guy who actually interested me and got me inspired. A man named Eric Leithwaite, a physicist who invented the linear induction motor, now resulting in the fastest train in the world, 600 kilometers an hour. If anybody goes to Shanghai, you can get on this one. It goes about 4.23, and I've been on that several times. So it was a Royal Institution lecture when I was 13 that really switched me on to um, science. What happened then, um, after leaving Ludlow, I went to read a degree in biophysics at Leeds University. This was the building when I arrived, the new one when I came away. I got a PhD, I went to Germany for five years, and then I came to Oxford in 1980. 
and I've been here ever since. I had very inspiring science teachers, and that's really what kept me going in this kind of uh, activity. And I read biophysics, and biophysics is an interdisciplinary subject. I didn't want to give up maths, I didn't want to give up chemistry, or physics, or biology. I like them all. Biophysics lets me do more, and I'll show you that today. Okay, so now to the science. So light is vital to everything, okay? This is the sun, you can see coronal mass ejections, you've heard about that, I know. And the radiation that comes from the sun, from the sun drives all life in everything, okay? And that uh, produces uh, photosynthesis, which I know you've already done. In fact, photosynthesis has been going on on the uh, face of the Earth since almost life began, the first forms of life. Capturing light in chlorophylls and turning it into energy. Here are bacteria, they can respond to life. Octopus and squid, they have a very special system. In fact, they can detect the polarization of light and use that to go and mate or to get direction. So they actually see the sun in a polarized way. The spider has six eyes, and I'll come back to that in a moment. And then we can now, as scientists, put in light fluorescent proteins to fish and animals to help us understand how they work. So light can be waves, and it can have a wave nature, and Robert Hooke, who discovered that in the mid-1600s, and here's his photograph again, he did all his work in these laboratories here at University College, and that plaque is on High Street. So it's a very important place for science and discoveries. And Robert Boyle worked with him, who discovered gas laws, which if you're not done yet, you will do. But there was an opposite view from Isaac Newton, and he said that light was particles. And how could both of them be right? Well, in fact, they are both right, and it depends how you want to describe it. So light is either a wave or a particle, and it depends how we want to describe it in physics or in biophysics. So light is part of a spectrum of radiation. Your mobile phones, anybody phoning a friend? This is where the radiation is coming from. The heat in here is around here, infrared, and you probably know about x-rays as well. And light is just a very small part of that, visible light. But light has energy. It has energy, and we can calculate that energy in the same way that we could for this ball. We know the mass, and if you knew the height above here, we can calculate the potential energy, mgh. You know that from physics, I suspect. We can also calculate the kinetic energy, mass times the velocity. Can you catch this? OK, so there we are. We've got energy in that ball. So we can calculate the energy of a photon of light. And here is, in fact, the way we do it. It's about one kilocalorie, for those of you who want to know. So how have we captured light on the face of the Earth since the origin of life 4.6 billion years ago? The oldest fossils are around 4 billion years ago. And in this evolutionary spiral, we see that about 3.6 billion years ago, Photosynthesis started in bacteria. This was green, and then it evolved into the redder colors, and then oxygen appeared because of these bacteria, and then we had higher life forms of multicellular organisms like you eventually. But if we go through the spiral, okay, we're up to a billion years here. It's actually here until the first eyes developed so that you could see and capture light and respond to that either to go to food or to go to uh, other animals for mating and so on. And even later than that, at 400 billion years, 
did bacteria produce the very first solar cell? And it's those two examples I'm going to talk to you about today. So this evolution of this bacterial solar cell happened when the dinosaurs were on the face of the Earth. And the dinosaur footprints are out there in the lawn if you want to go and see some from local places. So I'm going to tell you about these two things. A way in which nature captures light and turns it into electricity, far better than we do as man. I'll also tell you about light in eyes. And there's a very important chemical link. So I told you a little bit about evolution, told you a little bit about physics, and now I'm going to talk to you about chemistry. Who's done this experiment? Yep, many, many of you have done it. You've used purple fluid from a cabbage to show what happens in strong acid, like uh, bleach, or maybe strong alkali, the kind of thing that you clean your oven with at home, or at least your mother does, I guess, or father. You also know that the pH of the soil can change the color of a plant, okay? So there we have a, a very uh, a good indication. And we need to know, understand that from the chemistry, how that happens. Here's another purple vegetable. These are carrots, okay? So these are carrots that uh, were the first carrots that were ever cultivated by the Persians in the 10th century for us to eat. Sainsbury's tried to market them and they didn't get very far. But Marks and Spencer's have just remarketed them as rainbow carrots. Come to that in a second. So what gives these things a kind of purple color? Here's a bit of chemistry. It's this kind of molecule. It's an anthrocyanin, it means blue flower. Cyan, you know, it's blue, anthro. And it's actually the charge around that molecule which changes the color. So this is important. We can change the color any way we want in the system. And nature does that too. Here we have some tomatoes. They're colored actually by a different molecule, and it's called carotene. So this is the molecule that makes these uh, tomatoes, which you may find in your supermarket, different colors. But what about carrots? Carotene, carrots. These orange carrots were actually developed, and uh, they were selected and developed to, for the William of Orange, to praise him as being a great leader in the Dutch uh, Empire. And the molecule that makes these orange is very similar to the carrots, uh, to the tomato example. It's beta-carotene, which, after an enzyme reaction, breaks the molecule into this. And that is the chemical link I'm going to talk about. That is a molecule which is a vitamin for you and me, which means it's essential to your life, but it was discovered by George Wald in 1937. He got the Nobel Prize for that because it was so important. So we're going to look at this molecule, and this molecule can change color from yellow right through to purple. Okay? And in fact, uh, you may have heard that you have to eat carrots to be able to see. Well, that's not totally true. You actually have enough retinol in almost all of your diet to keep you going. And one carrot here contains enough, twice your daily requirement. You only need 0.0005 grams of carrot, uh, vitamin A retinol to maintain your vision, which is where this is going to go. So I need some volunteers, please, if I can. But you must like carrots, okay? So put your hands up if you'd like to come up. Okay, okay, no shouting, please. Okay, can we have, yes, you, fine. The young man back there, please, yes, come on down. And, um, yes, you 
Yes, please. Come on, Darren. Yes. Yeah, you can. Both of you. Both of you. Okay, so... Can um, please put on these blindfolds? Okay. So you put on the blindfolds, if you would. And what I'd like you to do... Put your blindfolds on, please. So what I'm going to do... I'm going to see whether these three people who love parrots, right? They can tell the difference between a purple parrot an orange carrot or a yellow carrot, okay? So will you please come and give them, in this order, don't look, give them a small piece each, eat it, and then uh, let's see which one is the one you prefer or whether you can tell any difference, okay? So whilst you're doing that, I'm going to ask you the answer in a moment. I'm just going to tell you what this molecule retinol does and how it works. Here is light, and when light hits that retinol, you can see that it changes its shape. Many molecules do this in nature. And it changes its shape and also increases its size. So the light energy, which I showed you in throwing the ball, is now captured within the, back to the, uh, uh, the retinal and makes it do something else. So this is how it works. It's actually a change. It also moves the charge. And it does this in a femtosecond, okay? So this is one fifteenth of a second, extremely quickly indeed. Okay, so how about carrot experts done? Did you prefer one, two, or three? Uh, You've only had one. Oh, give them the others as well. <laughs> give them number two, and then give them number three. We'll come to that. Okay. Okay, so retinal is our link between this bacterial solar cell that I'm going to tell you about and uh, the eye. We need to get the results of this first to see whether Sainsbury's really did make a mistake here. Okay? How's it going? Can you taste any difference? Ah, you've got an answer already. So, first, second, or third, you know? They taste like carrots. They taste like carrots. <laughs> they all taste the same? And what do you They all taste the same. Great. So Sainsbury's actually didn't sell them because people didn't like the purple colour rather than what they taste like. Okay, so take your um, uh, iPads off please. Thank you very much. Um, here is a little present from the museum for you to take home. They're glowstones. And suggestion from someone as to why the carrots all taste more or less the same, even though they're very different colours. Can somebody put their hand up and make a suggestion? I gave you a hint a moment ago. There's very little colouring in these. The most uh, component in this is in fact the um, sugars and carbohydrates that made up the food product in the carrot, okay? So there's very little difference because you don't taste the, the, the colour compounds and it's actually a very small proportion of the carrot and we're not sensitive to that. Okay, so now I'm going to talk about these. 
These are salt reclamation beds, and they, um, you can see these if you fly over, maybe in an aircraft, aircraft coming into uh, San Francisco, and many places in the world, and it's the way we get salt from, um, uh, from the sea. And this is a, a, a film to show you how we extract the salt and what's inside it. And why are these salt beds colored? They're colored because of these particular organisms. They're a bacteria, or they're like a bacteria. But these bacteria are very special. They're called archaea. And I'll tell you why in a moment. And they have these purple patches on them. And the purple patches are purple because of the same molecule that makes these carrots colored. Now, if we look at these bacteria, we have the area of a bacterium, and I can tell you that the diameter of a bacterium is about four to five microns. And to see how small they are, how many do you think might fit on the pin head? The pin head's about 1.5 millimeters across, so those who have quick thinking, or you can do the mental arithmetic, you could then divide that area into this. Can anybody give me a suggestion about how many bacteria might fit on the pinhead? Yes? 3,000, he says. Do you have an answer? No? Have a guess? Think of a number. 10,000. Anybody else have a guess? Somebody up the back there. Million. 14 million. And in fact, I found a photograph on the internet of bacteria on the end of a pin tip rather than the head. This is how big they are. So they're very small indeed. Where else do we see these uh, bacteria that are colored? We see them in salt. We also see them in salt that you can buy. This is Jamie Oliver's pink salt, which has come from Himalayas. And here it is. So I now need a couple of volunteers, please. But now I'm afraid it's got to be a teacher. OK? Somebody from the top here. Andrew. Okay, come on down, Andrew. Yes, a third person too, if you want to come. Now, the only reason I... So the only reason that I'm going to ask the teachers to do this is because I don't want to send you home and you tell your mums and dads that I made you eat salt because there's such a, an interest and anxiety about human salt in diets. But the other place that we find these kind of coloured uh, bacteria is in things like fish and meat which get preserved with salt and they live in the salt. And this is an, actually an animal skin which has been preserved with salt uh, to stop staphylococcus growing in. And not all salt contains archaea. Not all salt is coloured like this. Some salt that comes from Winsford in Cheshire, for example, or in Yorkshire, or in Krakow, that comes from mines like this, which were laid down in the evolutionary tree before the dinosaurs were on the face of the earth. <coughs> so any salt that comes out of the ground, which is called rock salt, is quite clear of bacteria, whereas marine salt contains bacteria. So shall we now ask our volunteers to taste some salt to see whether uh, it tastes any different 
from the salt that comes underground or comes from the sea. So please put your, um, so if you hold your hand out, just taste a little bit. You're doing it in freely, free consent, right? Uh, your hand, thank you. Your hand, go past here. Okay, just tell me whether you can tell taste the difference between that salt and this one, which is J. Oliver's, which is five times more expensive. Now, here we are. And this, there we are. And one more. So that's all from, you need to uh, tell me, can you taste the difference between, which was the best? Any answer? Taste the same. Tastes the same. Not so great. Not so great. Tastes the same? It still tastes like salt. Okay, so the second salt you've tasted has got bacteria in it. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Okay, so um, these bacteria then are here. They're archaea, as I said. They have this purple patch. And this purple catch now is actually what causes the salt lakes to be different colors. And inside there is a protein. I know you know about proteins. And that protein sits in the outer envelope of this uh, bacterium. And in this protein, our old friend retinol sits in there. And the size of the protein is about uh, 4,000, 1,000, 1,000 per millimeter across. So it's one of these very small uh, bacteria, but now the protein's even smaller than that, okay? Four nanometers. So I've got our old friend retinol, and here it's right at this very end of the spectrum because the electronic environment gives it that. And this is the retinol I've been showing you. I've made it purple here. And how does this work? How does this retinol make an electrical solar cell? So when light hits the retinol, a water molecule is uh, split into a proton, an H plus charge, and an O minus charge. So we've taken a water molecule and we've split it apart. And that really is something that still defies physicists. But in nature, it's been happening for 400 million years, which is pretty standard. Let's just see that again. We're splitting water into a proton, an H plus charge, and an O minus. And as it does it, it actually does change color but it's happened so quickly that it stays purple most of the time. Let's just have a look again. There we are, light, bringing this charge down and leaving behind an O minus. So the retinol is actually straight to begin with. Light hits it and then it moves. So I'm going to show you that and we're going to show how that water splits. But I need another volunteer and I need someone with a purplish kind of a, a jumper and almost everybody's in the old Fortunately, there's a, a lady here who's actually in a green kind of purple. So would you like to come up and help us, please? I'd like someone up here, please. Yes, you. That's all.
Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask Miss Lyle to put her hands out straight. When I flash a light, I'd like you to bend this arm down. Okay, ready? Right, thank you. Back. Back again. Back again. Right, okay. This time when you make your hand go down, come forward Katie a little bit please. Will you take a hydrogen atom off, what's your name? Thomas. Thomas. And will you give it to Katie please, okay? So, ready? One, two, three, right. Take the hydrogen off. Oh, I was hoping Miss Lyle would do that. <coughs> Don't worry. So can you see how that works? Put it back again, let's do it again. Miss Lyle can take it this time, okay? Here we are, we're going to flash Miss Lyle with this light. She's going to grab the hydrogen and she's going to give it to Katie. There we are, off you go. That's it. Now she can't do that in a femtosecond, which is what it happens in nature, but you can do it for here. That's what exactly happens how water gets split into two different charges. Thank you very much, Miss Lyle. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Tom. Okay, so how does that work then? Well, what's happening now is we've split our water, and what we've done is we've created, because this hydrogen positive charge goes across the membrane, the, the cell membrane of the bacteria, we have now created a difference in charges on one side and the other side. And if we ch separate charges, we have electricity. We have a potential difference. We have a difference in the charges on either side, and this makes electricity. And in fact, the electricity that is formed by that proton translocation produces a voltage across this bacterium of 150 millivolts. Now, I told you about little things, but that's only a tenth of the voltage of this battery. It's a huge voltage. It's a huge voltage, okay? So, we are producing large amounts of energy from the sun, and 60% of that energy we could calculate for a photon is converted into that energy. In the solar cell that you can see, and they're putting in solar farms on people's houses, the best you can do is 7 to 10% capture of the photon energy. So nature, for 400 million years, has been that efficient, and doing it that quickly. In your cells, there is a powerhouse that produces electricity and protons, and it's called the mitochondrion. And I think some of you will have seen that uh, already in your lessons. And this is what it looks like. It's got lots of proteins in there which make the proton break. About 40 years ago, sitting right where you are, this man, John Walker, was learning organic chemistry. He got the Nobel Prize in 1997 for that. That's how important, that's how close you are to this science, okay? And I see that when my former undergraduates have sneaked in at the back, when my daughter Isabel back there, she too, three years ago, was learning organic chemistry here in this lecture theater from lecturers like me. So that is important. Let me come to the last example, the second example. And this now is how we use light, rather than this bacterium uses light to make electricity. You all have probably labelled up an eye in biology. You know what it looks like. And you've probably also looked at the back of an eye. 
In the back of the eye is where your light is received. And if you've got the uh, flash on your camera, you might get red eye like this. And you get red eye because your uh, iris doesn't close down quickly enough and you can now see the back of the eye. And here's our old friend retinal again. So let's look at the eye. Here is the back of the eye. And it looks like this. It's got a large number of these rod cells. They look more or less like my laser pointer. And there's a lot of them sitting there at the back of your eye. Can anybody guess how many of these rod cells are at the back of each one of your eyes? Can you have a guess? Go on. Yeah. Several million, pretty good going. Any advance on several million? Somebody at the back there? Yes? Ten million. Ten million. Okay. You've got 120 million of those cells at the back of your eye. And they are receiving light at the moment, unless like that young lad back there who's asleep. Oh, you're awake. Good. Welcome back. The point is that if you have your eyes closed and you're not receiving light, then these don't work. But these rod cells, they receive scotopic vision, or in other words, black and white and low-level vision. That's the way you capture vision, you capture light. And inside these rod cells, we know what they look like. We've known what they look like since we had microscopes developed by Robert Hooke, in fact. And each of these rod cells has got an internal part here. But this is like a stack of pitabreds, all stacked on top of each other. And there's about 2,000 of them in there. During the time of this lecture, you are going to lose about 100 of those discs of each rod cell. They will drop off, they will go into your eye, and they'll be recycled back into your body, and then the proteins will be reused. This is a very fast developing cell. And inside each one of these titabreds, is like a membrane. We saw that around the bacteria. Also, the protein around there also looks like the protein in the bacteria. And here's a model of it, lit up down here. We know what the structure is, and it's a very important type of protein, and it's actually from the family of proteins that's the biggest protein family on your genome. And it controls everything from vision, to taste, to touch, to smell, and these proteins attracted again a Nobel Prize at least four times in the last 10 years. That's how important they are. But if we look at this rhodopsin protein, it's called rhodopsin, inside, here's our old friend retinal that's coming from our carrots. Okay? That's why people say you should eat carrots so that you can see. What about color vision? Well, here we have the rod cells, here we have the cone cells, and you've only got about six and a half million of those. So you don't have many, even though to us, colour is a much greater sensation than just black and white vision. And the difference in these different uh, cones that we have comes from this protein, it can either be blue, green or red, and that's because the retinal can have the different colours. And we can change the protein to change the colour of retinal so that you can see colour, and that's quite important just like the pH indicator from the red cabbage juice. So humans have about three, have three sets of cones that are detecting colour in different wavelengths, red, blue and green. And you know about colour blindness, okay. Is there anybody here who has colour blindness? One person, two people, three. It's more prevalent, of course, in boys than it is in girls. 
But it is there. So now this is an experiment for everybody. I'm going to show you a colorblind this test. It's going to be a green circle. And I want you to put up your hands immediately if you can see a word written across the middle in orange. Okay, you ready? He can. You're pretty clever. I was just kidding. Just kidding. There it is, okay. Everybody can see it. Can anybody not see that now? Can anybody not see that? You can't see it. Test time. There are many other tests as well, of course, but that just happens to be one that is, uh, is, is used. Cats and dogs have two sets of cones. They see in greys, yellows, and blues. And we come back to our spider again, and he's pretty clever because he's got six eyes. These two can see like you can. They can see in regular vision with a regular spectrum. But he's got four other eyes, two here and two here and they detect ultraviolet light, which also cats can see, so they can see at night, and also extremes of infrared. So this is a very clever spider. He's a hopping spider from Australia. And squid and octopus, as I say, their eyes, they have one very big eye with much more of the retinal material, but they can detect direction just because of the way their eye cells are set out. So this is what the retinal looks like. And Miss Lyles down here was like this for the retinal in bacteriodopsin, in the uh, bacterial cell. But it starts off in your eye bent up like this. It's bent. And when light hits that, it becomes straight. So it's undergoing a mechanical change again. And that mechanical change releases a huge amount of energy in your eye for every photon of light that's captured. Okay? So it's transmitted into mechanical movement of the protein. Now, Jonathan also asked me to tell you things that I've discovered. And this is something I discovered. And I also discovered the, the bacteriodopsin, the bacterial case as well. And those two bits of work are something that, that has stands my lab out a little bit. So we were the first to ever see that and measure it. And that was a discovery we made with my students. So how does that work? Well, this is our redoxin. It's sitting in our pitta bread, which is sitting in the rod cell at the back of your eye. And here comes a photon of light. Here it comes, here it bangs into redoxin and activates it and does that with the retinal. This particular redoxin talks to another one of these proteins, talks to another one, talks to another one. And in fact, one of these photons is amplified one million times in less than a microsecond, okay? Man has never made a device that's that fast and can amplify a single signal so many times. It's a tremendous lesson to learn from biology. And what happens in your eye, in fact, is the electric impulse around this cell is switched off and that then sends an impulse to the brain and it then gives you an image in your brain. The chances of it happening spontaneously is one in 10,000 years. That's how well nature has controlled this event. So that means you don't get spontaneous vision in your eye. 
Okay, and then of course the next thing that happens is neural impulses produce an image or a reaction or response, and then you can respond to that particular life. So, what have we heard? What have we learnt from uh, uh, talking about retinols? We have learned several things. Vitamin A is another name for retinol. There's plenty of it in a normal diet, but around 250,000 children every year are born blind because of a deficiency in the retinol. Okay? It's a thing that has been uh, rectified partly by golden rice, for example, an example of genetic modification of taking rice and making it make retinol and then giving it to children in deprived areas so they have enough retinol. You got your very first retinol either from your mother's breast milk or from a bottle because it's in that because you don't have it as a baby when you're a, a newborn. Retinol is used in many life forms to capture light. It's a very sophisticated molecule even though it looks very simple. Retinol changes its shape when hit by light. It changes its shape and it can also move charge and make electricity. Really clever. Retinols can be tuned to different colours. They can tune from yellow to orange to or, uh, purple, depending upon what the need is. And nature works on a very small scale. It works at nanoscale, nanobiology, which is a very important new area of biology. And that nature works very quickly and highly efficiently. And what I've been telling you about is a little bit of maths, a little bit of chemistry, a little bit of physics, a little bit of biology, even a bit of psychology with the carrots, okay? And all that adds up to something that I'm passionate about, which is biophysics. Thank you very much for your attention.